my dad is still with us. And if I've learned anything in the seminary or how to be a true father, it's from him, not from all the 10 years of studies. It's just watching him. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today's episode is on fatherhood. I wanted to get a few bishops talking about their dads, just like the episode I did for Mother's Day. But I also wanted to get into what fatherhood is, because it is certainly at least a little bit less clear or obvious than motherhood. Also, just a warning that in the middle of this episode, we're going to talk about something that may not be appropriate for little ones. It just surprises me how often I have to say that. The voice you heard on the opening was Bishop Mansour of the Eparchy of St. Marin of Brooklyn. Bishop Mansour saw that his father knew how to handle people. No, he's not judgmental. He's not. He was never punitive. I never remember my father punishing me. I always remember him confronting me about different things, but never with anger, never with... Yeah, so that was a great example. A very, a very good example of a strong, loving, faithful man, not afraid of confronting and straightening you out when you needed it, but not, not overly uh, oppressive in his control. And here's a story about his dad from Bishop Caggiano from Bridgeport. I know, I have Bishop Caggiano on like every episode, but all of this material came from only one interview with him. So what can I say? He's articulate and interesting. My father, as I said, is a longshoreman. He used to take the end train to 36th Street where the piers were. He was on the train, and there were three young people. And there was a pregnant woman standing. You know, on the subways in the city of New York that you're holding up, right? My father's standing next to the pregnant woman. So she gets on, and she's obviously almost due. My father said, she's red in the face, she's perspiring, she's huffing and puffing, and these three are just joking. So my father father said to them, excuse me, but this woman's pregnant. Can somebody get up and give her a seat? No response. So he waited one stop. Next stop comes. My father said, excuse me. He said, you're all young. Get up and give your seat to this woman. Somebody give it. Whoever it was says, shut up, old man. Waits till the next stop. Now you have to understand, in the old days, before containerization, every longshoreman carried a hook. It was a hook with a, with a small handle because they would hook the bags, flip the bag over their back, and carry it out the ship. So at the third stop, my father pulled out the hook and he said, now, which one of you is going to hang on this hook because you're going to give a, a seat to this woman? They all looked up. He pulled it out. All three got up and walked away. My father said, now, please have a seat. Now, I said, to him, you actually did that? Do you know you could be arrested? <laughs> but in my father's mind, this woman is in distress. There is no reason that one of you could not get up to help. That's a sign of disrespect. That is a sign of lack of concern. And at that moment, he could care less what the consequences were. He was going to stand up for what he needed to be. <laughs> now, I would never do that. <laughs> I'd be much more, you know, uh, civil about it. I also talked to Bishop Sis from San Angelo. And he shared a story about his dad's unusual response to some of his misbehavior. I was a teenager. I guess I was junior high. A group of friends and I got in trouble. We had done some stupid things and we all got in trouble. All of our parents called each other on the phone 
and let each other know what happened. And so we were all in trouble. And so I thought, well, it's going to be rough for a little while, for a few days in the aftermath of this event. But the very next day, my dad said, Mike, let's go get in the car. Let's go over to the store because we need to buy you a new bicycle. And so we went over to the store, the discount store, of course. And I got a brand new bicycle, a 10 speed, you know. And I was very grateful for this new bike. But it just didn't compute in my teenage mind. When I was in such big trouble, my dad would finally think this is the moment to get me a new bicycle. And what that has meant to me over the years is it exemplifies God's love. Because God's love is not something that we deserve. We don't merit his grace. It's given despite the fact that we don't deserve it. And it's always been a beautiful example to me of how a dad or a mom can demonstrate God's love by the way they treat their children. So let's stick with this idea of dad as the disciplinarian. For a lot of people, the phrase, wait until your father gets home, was one that struck fear into the heart. I'm not talking here about abuse. We touched on that in an earlier episode. I just mean that guilty feeling of knowing that you did something wrong and wondering what mom was going to tell dad and what the just consequences might be of your action. Here's Deborah Savage talking about this in her family. One night, Maddie was rude to me, and for some reason I didn't try to fight with her about it. I simply went out into the living room because I knew that I needed help. I could not handle this. She was having a teenage moment. I went out into the living room and I said to my husband, please, you have to go speak to your daughter. She was just very rude to me and I don't know what to do. And he said, well, what did you, well, what did she say? What did you say? I said, it doesn't matter. Just go in there and tell her she can't speak to her mother like that. And he went into her bedroom and he closed the door. I don't know what he said, but within two minutes, she was out in the kitchen apologizing to me with a completely different attitude. One of Deborah's favorite topics to talk about is the masculine genius. Now, Catholics are very used to hearing the phrase feminine genius because St. John Paul II used that idea often. But obviously, if there's a feminine genius, there must be a corresponding genius for men. Just watch the first few minutes of Saving Private Ryan if you want to see what men are capable of. Or think about all the men in Houston, the images that we have of the heroic effort that we see men engage in in particular to save people from their death, carrying babies out, carrying women out, fighting the waves of the flood to get to someone in a truck. Men do have superior physical strength, and because of that strength, perhaps, they also have tremendous courage that brings them into harm's way without a second thought. So the the masculine genius is very clear. There's evidence of it everywhere. Those are two big, dramatic demonstrations of men who rise to the occasion of self-sacrifice in service to others. But there are also small acts of heroism that are done by men every day. My husband in particular never asks for thanks, but works tirelessly every day to provide for his family, keep us safe, to anticipate the future, make sure that we're ready for it. 
If there is a snowstorm, he's the first to shovel. If something goes wrong with anything in the house, he is immediately on top of it. He's teaching my young daughter how to work, how to understand that nothing is free, that you have to work to become a member of the community. The job of the father is to introduce the child to the law of exchange, which is this law that says nothing is free, and the child needs to learn how to interact with the world. What do Catholic dads think about their own role in the family? Here's Mark Hartfield. Hi, this is Mark Hartfield, Vice President of Paradises Day. He's got some thoughts about fatherhood. So one of my favorite quotes of all time, this one just rocks me to my core, is John Paul II. And he says, men relive and reveal on earth the very fatherhood of God. And when I hear that statement, it's more than any one thing I can go do. Being a father is more than what you do. It's it's who you are. This will sound familiar if you listened to the episode on complementarity. Fatherhood isn't a set of tasks. It's a relationship. Mark remembers how his own father put Mark's needs before his own. He's just the type of dad who would take the shirt off his back and give it to you if you were in need. Anything tangible that he sees a need in his children, he would very easily stop what he's doing. He's just going to do it. He would easily lay his life down for his children in the small things. And I think I needed a car (laughs) at some point. And my dad was in Houston, Texas, driving to work every day. And his car, his truck he had, the AC went out. It's hot, very extremely hot in Houston in the summer. And if you have no AC in your truck, like, you're doomed. And I just remember a comment one time. I just never can forget it. He said something like, well, Mark needs a car first. And he was talking financially speaking, like before he gets his air conditioning and his truck fixed, we got to take care of Mark needing a car. And I just look back at that and, wow, it's just the kind of father that he is. He loves his children first. Sadly, men can also do the opposite, not considering the impact of their presence or absence on their children. Fatherlessness is a deep problem in our society. In some ways, looking at what's missing when dad isn't in the picture can also help us understand what fatherhood is. Here's Katie Doran. My name is Katie Doran. I'm from Florida, but live in New Jersey, working for a marriage movement called Canavox, and I was conceived through sperm donation. Katie's is an unusual story because if you looked from the outside... Her family looked totally normal. Mom, dad, kids. I grew up with a dad, but he wasn't who I was related to, and they actually told me as an adult. So for her whole childhood and adolescence, Katie grew up with the assumption that her parents were, well, her parents in every sense of the word. It was her brother, Matt, who felt that something was off. My brother actually asked how we were conceived. Well, he asked how he was conceived. He knew that something was off, so he asked our dad on the phone, and he told him, you're from a sperm donor. After finding out that Katie was his full sister, that their mom used the same sperm donor for both of them, Matt insisted that his parents tell Katie the truth. I was in college and home for Thanksgiving, and it was my senior year. My brother had been kind of more distant from me, like I'd noticed he hadn't been calling me as much. And I was the only kid at home that Thanksgiving. 
and they called a family meeting. We were sitting on the couch, and my dad explained they had trouble having kids. And then he said, I am not your biological father. I think the first thing I said was, what about Matt? And they were told he was my full sibling, but there also wasn't a way they could be 100% sure at that time. So I just immediately went and called him, and he said, yeah, that's why I had a hard time just talking to you during this time. He had known for over five months at that point. Katie says that it is hard to find people who understand and empathize with her experience because it is so relatively rare. Our identities are made up of so many factors, and since we are embodied souls and our bodies matter, our natural parentage matters too. As we talked about on the adoption episode, open adoption attempts to recognize this human reality. But in adoption, you can have confidence that your parents wanted what's best for you, that it was a bad situation and they were doing their best. By contrast, with donor conception, the person who is becoming a father or a mother has no intention of having a relationship with the child. With donor conception, you're actually creating a child with the intention of having certain traits or features. So it's, it's even more like a product mindset. Third-party reproduction is about the parents, even while its focus seems to be the child. You're not giving a home to a child in need. You're kind of saying, okay, I can't have kids with my loved ones, so I'm going to do whatever it takes to have my own child. I wondered whether Katie's brother was right in making her parents tell her the truth. Would Katie have been better off living in ignorance of her conception? It certainly would have been easier, psychologically speaking, so I asked. Yeah, I'm very glad that they told me. I think every person has a right to know where they come from. I think donor-conceived people are at a loss. We're scattered. A lot of people don't know they're donor-conceived. I actually have a friend. I'm one of two people who knows that this person is donor-conceived. It's pretty heart-wrenching, especially if you have that inclination and you just know that you don't fit in, that you can't explain why. It's very freeing to find out and be able to put pieces of your life together and pieces of who you are, especially in finding your family. And especially for me, having my full brother has been such a blessing. We really appreciate each other more because of this knowledge and a very close relationship. After years of searching, Matt and Katie both spoke to their biological father. I actually have met my father on the phone, and it was so cool just even knowing that he existed when we got that DNA test back. Katie now gives talks about donor conception in various venues, including the UN. We talked about what gives her strength. My relationship with God is my my rock, and the church is my family that doesn't disappoint. I've really found safety in just a body that knows that I am created beautifully. Even though it's against the practice, that doesn't mean that it's against me. And the church does a great job, I think, of balancing that, even though people say it doesn't. I think the teachings by themselves are good at balancing that. If we take Katie's experience seriously, we confront the importance of knowing who our dads are and knowing that we are loved by them. And there's also an important element for boys of identification with their father. Here's Andy Lichtenwalner, 
who until May of this year, 2018, was the executive director of our secretariat of Laity Marriage, Family Life, and Youth. Yeah, my son Philip has just been taking part in a soccer clinic. You know, the first time he did it, he wasn't that happy about it. They were just doing trials and that type of thing and not really doing games. So he came back pretty negative, but he was looking forward to the next time at it. I was praying as the dad, like, oh, I just hope he has fun out there, a fun experience, and he was able to kick the ball around some and run around. He's in second grade. Well, I get a call on my way home from work from my wife, Kristen, who says, Philip was kicked in the face with a soccer ball today. And it's like, ah. And as a dad, you're just thinking like, man, like that's such a, such a blow. Because you can kind of think back as a little boy trying to maybe, you know, have fun in a sport and not succeeding well. So I was praying, you know, kind of like, how in the world am I going to talk to him about it? I don't want to just kind of bring it up like, hey, buddy, sorry to hear you got kicked in the face with a soccer ball and then like destroy all attempts to you know, get him to go to the next week's clinic. I know Kristen as the mom, she was very nurturing and comforting and just kind of hearing about like what happened and that type of thing. And, and that all happened before I got home. So when I got home, it was about dinner time. So we were all sitting around the table. I didn't bring up soccer at all explicitly. I, I mentioned to him, you know, Philip, you know, when I was little playing baseball, I remember getting hit in the head with the baseball during a game. I was behind second base, trying to kind of back up the second baseman, catching the ball, and the ball kind of flew and just hit me on the head. You know, and I just remember like being really a little embarrassing, but you know what? I got through it. Did I ever tell you about that time? And he smiled and said, no, it's funny you say that because I got hit with a soccer ball today. But he wasn't emotional about it, and he kind of took it with a little bit of humor. You know, I hope I was able to identify an experience I had that was similar to his, but it's not just the similar experience, it's the experience as a boy growing up. Kristen could have the same experience, but the point of it is that as a father, I was able to identify with my son and be able to give him an experience that, hey, I, I was a son, I was a boy too, and I had the same experience and I got through it. You can't measure that type of thing. Andy says that there are ways in which becoming a man is a social process. I think something that seems to be borne out in statistics or at least in basic experience in terms of this need for men to be challenged to become men, to become ever more like the, the, the man of God that they're called to be, you know, whether it's a, you know, as a father or as, you know, as a husband, as a brother, as a leader in some form. There's actually lots of sociological data about this difference between the sexes. Girls become women in a kind of natural progression with a distinct physical sign. Boys throughout time and in different ways in different cultures are expected to prove themselves somehow. Men appreciate the challenge, but also kind of need it. We see like in adolescence too, you know, when boys are maybe struggling about who they're called to be, who they are, where God is calling them. It's so helpful to have a mentor or somebody that's helping them along the way, accompanying them in discipleship, helping them see God's call for them and challenging them to take a next step in service, to actually be a self-gift to somebody else. Again, thinking back to complementarity, this doesn't mean that to be a man requires you to do certain things. But it's interesting that rites of passage have historically been important to male development, 
So what are some virtues that men need in order to be good fathers? Here's Joseph Capizzi. I never thought, do I have what it takes to be a father? And I can't imagine that most men or women think to themselves, do I have what it takes to be a good parent? And I'll even say this more strongly. I think when people are asking themselves that question, they're probably asking the wrong question. Because if you ask yourself that question that way, probably the answer is always going to be no, right? No, I'm not. I mean, look at me. I'm weak. I know my flaws and so on. I think what you have to ask yourself is, am I somebody who's capable of loving other people? And how do you know that as a parent? Well, you know it by your, your relationship with your spouse. You know, am I really loving her the way love requires? And that's, of course, that sac- sacrificial sense of love, that sense of real openness, you know, vulnerability to each other. And if you're doing those things, then you're prepared to be a parent, even though you may have no idea how to change a diaper, no idea about your levels of patience, no idea about whether you you're going to be able to provide for these children materially and so on, right? These are all things that are, in essence, accidental, things that you'll learn almost instantly upon becoming a parent, whereas the much more critical things are, do I know how to love other people? And there's proof of this by your relationship with your spouse. Love can be hard. It requires a lot of us. I think humor has got to be a component of it, humility, patience, and then, of course, prudence, choosing battles to fight, recognizing the spirit of this other human being. A lot of what they're doing is not necessarily acting out against you or opposition to you. It's the expression of a spirit that's trying to find itself. And as a parent, the last thing you want to do is squelch that spirit. You want to cultivate that spirit. It's an awesome responsibility, right? There's this other human being who's trying to learn who they are and the gifts that God has given them and how to express those, how to change the world by their own activity. What a phenomenal responsibility to be involved in that process. So the last thing you want to do is act in some way that will diminish that spirit. You're just trying to cultivate it and direct it towards goods. That's a wonderful thing about being a parent is watching children who you're fighting with, you know, when they're 14 or 15 or 16, and then seeing them when they're 17, 18 and 19, starting to convert all of that, all that wonderful energy that they were fighting you with towards good things. Joe might be a little unusual as a dad because he loves the teenage years of his children. I love the teenage years. I find them wonderful. This is when these young people are really getting a sense of the world and they're they're thinking through these awesome challenges that we're all thinking through. And it's so much fun to be a part of that as well, to, to engage them intellectually, to watch them think through these issues and to watch them deal with their friends and deal with a culture that can seem completely mad at times. And why shouldn't your children be struggling with a culture that seems completely mad at times? So again, humility, humor, patience can help you recognize this is not something to to think of as, oh, I have to bear the teenage years. But again, this is a gift itself to be involved in the formation of these people at this point in their lives and the way they're forming you even as you're becoming hopefully better, more polished, and more virtuous. Joe also sees the way that being a father has affected his relationship with God. I think parenting has really deepened my relationship with Christ and the church, with with my faith, really. Um, Again, it was not something I thought about, okay, if I have children, this will do this for me. But certainly watching my own children's faith grow 
and they're you know wonderfully faithful human beings and i'm very very grateful for this has enriched and confirmed my own faith it keeps leading me back to prayer and my own sense of trying to cultivate gratitude in myself and then gratitude in my children that's one of those things that Mary and I hit constantly is gratitude. And becoming a father is a gift, not a right. We need to have a sense of thankfulness for all that we're given. And that's in the context of recognizing that we don't merit any of it. This is not stuff that we earn. Even from a secular perspective, many people recognize that there's something, if you look at the world in a certain way, unjust about the way goods are distributed among people. And as Christians, we can explain to them, yes, that's right. And this is why what you have is something that, you know, you need to be grateful for and not think, oh, I got this, you know, by virtue of my own activity or my own goodness or, you know, my parents are brilliant or whatever. It's instead a wonderful gift. And to cultivate that in one's children has, of course, always had this reflexive activity on me and Mary. We're telling them, cultivate gratitude. We're trying to show them, cultivate gratitude. And of course, thank God, it's only cultivated our own gratitude as well. Staying with this idea, what if you deeply desire to be a father, but that gift is not given to you? I'm Paul Jarzembowski. I'm the Assistant Director for Youth and Young Adult Ministries at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. The idea of being a father in a spiritual sense was always part of Paul's life. My dream as a child was to actually be a priest. So in a sense, though I couldn't identify at the time, I dreamt of spiritual fatherhood. Some people dream of being firemen or lawyers or doctors, but I dreamed of being a priest. When Paul married Sarah 16 years ago, they hoped to become parents, but it wasn't to be. However, they both serve young people all the time in very parent-like ways. So when I was reflecting on my experiences of spiritual fatherhood as a youth and young adult minister, it was difficult initially to think about them because simply the work that you do, you walk with them, you know, aside from good conversations and, and meaningful conversations, there wasn't anything, there was no dramatic experience, you know, we didn't have any crises between spiritual father and spiritual children. <laughs> there wasn't any of that. It was simply walking with them. Unlike biological fathers who usually get to be with their children for all of life, Spiritual fathers are usually involved in a particular phase of somebody's life. I think one of the struggles I've had as a spiritual father is jealousy of biological fathers. All the young people and the young adults and the colleagues that I've been a spiritual father to have actual fathers and have actual parents, grandparents, family that supports them. So there's a little bit of jealousy that I don't get to see everything. Uh, you know, I've only been in their life for that short period of time or that particular advice that I was that was being sought of me. So there's a little bit of jealousy. So I struggled in the sense of wishing that I could see that through to fruition, knowing that you've played a part on that stage of the journey. And then when that's over, um, you have to trust that other people will take it from there. And so and sometimes you'll never know. Sometimes you just hope that along the way, what you did had some kind of impact. And spiritual fatherhood isn't all fun and games. It sometimes entails hard conversations. I have had incidents where someone is in a negative situation or they're going down a path that you feel in your head you never would have given them advice to go down, but that's the way it's where they're at at this moment. The privileged place of a spiritual father is that 
ideally, the person trusts you. And they trust that if you are to respond to them, if you are to fraternally correct them, if you are to give them some difficult advice, that it's out of a place of love. So if that is the foundation of your relationship with that person, if they trust you as a mentor, as a leader, as a spiritual father, then give them the advice that they may need to hear at that time. Part of the struggles of being a spiritual father is that sometimes your spiritual children may walk away and they may get frustrated with you. But be comforted in the sense that you never did anything for your spiritual children that was out of anger, spite, or for someone's not for their well-being. You did it all for them. You did it all for for their journey. And that's all you could really give to them. In his role at the Bishop's Conference, Paul really enjoys seeing the bishops being spiritual fathers to young people. One of my spiritual fathers was Bishop, well, now Archbishop Peter Sarton of Seattle. He was my boss in the Diocese of Joliet. You know, he very much took me under his wing to tell me his story and to trust in me. He said he learned from me some things about young adults, and I learned so much from him about church and about being a leader. It is my advice always to anyone in this work to help young people meet their bishops and to see them as spiritual fathers, because so many of them have such sage advice and are good listeners. To close out this episode on fatherhood, we're going to hear a spiritual father, Bishop Paprocki of the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, tell a story about his dad. This is a, something my dad did for him. He knew I loved cars so much, so he actually went to the junkyard once and bought me a steering wheel so that I'd have the steering wheel and I could play car at home. This is like when I'm five years old and I just had my own make-believe car because my dad brought me a steering wheel from the junkyard. But that was uh, a little thing, but you look back as a small child, and that was a very loving thing for my dad to do. What my mother didn't like about it is I had that steering wheel and I put it on the, the arm of the couch and I would turn it like this to turn the wheel, and eventually I, I made a hole in the, in the arm of the sofa. Well, my mother wasn't too happy about that because we had to get a new sofa because of my steering wheel. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor. Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.